Osiris. It almost makes me cry right now talking about it. I had never fucking given up. I did not kill myself. Every day I tried. Suddenly I was so moved by gratitude to myself, by whatever part of me just kept going. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. everybody welcome to this episode of salute the songbird i'm your host maggie rose and i appreciate your patience with the day late release of this episode i've been out on the almond family revival which has been so much fun but the first couple days of this tour were a bit of a whirlwind so thank you for allowing me to get my bearings and put the finishing touches on this episode which is definitely worth the wait because i'm speaking to the one and only jewel who's a singer songwriter poet and actress best-selling author. She's an activist and a mental health advocate and expert, and she's also a mother. She's a deep thinker, and we talked about the tools she utilized during some of the most difficult times in her life, which ultimately led her to the work she does now in raising awareness around mental health. She's led an incredible life, and during our conversation, she told me a bunch of stories from her childhood, the early days of her career, some of which were unfathomably hard. And she told me about the moment when she realized that things were starting to change in a positive way. And she really reflects that positivity on her recent release, Free Will and Woman. The conversation with Jewel was rich and deep, and there are so many life lessons in this episode. So sit back and relax and absorb the wisdom of our friend Jewel. Jewel, welcome to Salute the Songbird. Thank you so much for your time and for being a part of this show. You're so accomplished in your career. You've continuously evolved as a singer, a songwriter, a poet, an actress, a best-selling author, an activist, a mental health advocate, an expert, and a mother. And you seem so wholehearted in all of these efforts, especially after listening to your latest album, Free Will and Woman, where you seem 
Like you're really enjoying life and you're encouraging others to do the same, which is pretty awesome. But you didn't necessarily have the easiest beginning. And I know that it's very well documented. I've heard you tell your story a couple of times, but my experience is that our accounts of our history always change as we walk through life. So if you would be so inclined to kind of tell us about your huge rise and the beginning of it all. Yeah, how far back should we, should we go? <laughs> you want me to start from? <laughs> You're like, it was 19. More career or, or kind of more well, the whole arc? I think so much of what your philosophy and what you're doing with you know, mental health and even your approach to these creative periods that you take in between your art has to be attributed a lot to the fact that you've had this self-awareness about you know, mental health and what you had to teach yourself to do, which was to find happiness. And how do we do that? Like, who teaches us to do that? And you very actively seem to do that with, you know, your upbringing being tough and playing in bars at 15 and kind of getting to experience what people would use music for, which is to escape just the rigor of life and addiction and all sorts of things. So I feel like that's a pretty significant part of your identity and what's led you to where you are. Yeah. I guess for anybody new to me, I grew up in Alaska. I was raised on a homestead by a single father. My mom left when I was eight. My dad and I started bar singing at that age. So I was singing in a lot of like lumberjack joints and fisherman joints and just, you know, bars. We would do five hour sets, mostly covers, but my dad was a songwriter and he did a lot of original music as well. I sang harmony. I didn't play an instrument. I just sort of sang harmony and he played guitar. Growing up in bars gave me an amazing front seat to seeing how different types of people deal with pain. When my mom left, obviously it was really painful. My dad started drinking. He started being abusive all really suddenly. So obviously I was in a lot of pain. And so I was able to see the people in the bar. I was like, oh, wait, we're all in pain. And why isn't anybody teaching me what to do with pain? And the way they were dealing with pain looked awful. You know, watching drunks isn't cute. Watching drug addicts isn't cute. It didn't look like it was working. You know, I wasn't seeing the high-functioning alcoholic. I was seeing people it was not working for. And so, I don't know, it just made me very curious. I'm really visual, and so I always would see, like, in pictures. And when I looked at the people that were in the bars, I, you know, my takeaway was nobody outruns pain. Like, we'll have to deal with it. And the way I was watching a lot of people deal with it was like, that. let's say there's a cut and they don't want to feel the cut and then they would just bury it under a lot of now what we would call avoidant tactics. I just saw it as these layers of avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And then I watched people die. You know, some people died without the ability to even afford a coffin. And we'd sing in a parking lot of a bar to have a fundraiser so that we could bury the body. And so... I came up with little phrases for myself, like nobody can outrun pain. I called it putting a pin in it because I had heard that term of like when I was in a lot of pain, I was like, if I can't deal with it now, I'll put a pin in it. And then I wrote. And when I wrote, I was like, well, that actually helps. I actually feel better when I write. And that became by default my coping mechanism. And it ended up being a pretty healthy one. 
I vowed to never drink. I vowed to never do drugs. I vowed to try and handle my pain as it came. And that if I couldn't handle it at the time, I just tried to have faith that I'd find another time to handle it. And I ended up moving out young. I moved out at 15. And I knew that statistically kids like me, the odds of it working out were really slim. And I knew it. I was doing a dangerous thing. I was doing a dangerous, scary thing. And I didn't want to hide from myself how dangerous and how scary it was to live on my own. Although I think to some degree, I'm sure I did. But I felt like I wanted to have a plan. Like, what makes me think I'm going to have this work out at all in a positive way? Because this should work out to like prostitution and drug use. <laughs> so how do I avoid prostitution and drug use? And so as I sat and puzzled on it and just sort of pondered about it, I was looking at the idea, I was reading a lot of philosophy at the time and, you know, come across this idea of nature versus nurture. And when you were 15, reading a lot of philosophy? Yeah. You know, it was funny. I lived in Anchorage for a little while and I went to a school for troubled kids. Uh, it was called an alternative school. It's for all the pregnant kids and the kids that were gay that didn't fit in at the straight schools. And it was just in my neighborhood and I was probably a troubled kid, but they had a new course there that was a philosophy program. And they had this teacher come from the lower 48, you know, the continental U.S., who came up and kind of led these symposiums. And it was an actual class that you were able to take. The school that I went to during those two years ran kind of like a, more like a college, maybe. You could elect to take things. You didn't have to show up. You know, you could flunk out, you know, obviously, but it kind of ran a more like self guided program. And I was super, super dyslexic, but I was really interested in the ideas. And so I, it was a whole massive journey getting myself to read with the type of dyslexia I had, but it ended up really changing my life because I was so taken with what I was reading. And it was everything from, you know, the metamorphosis, right? Which is just more of a modern fiction by uh, what Kurt Vonnegut Jr., or uh, maybe not the metamorphosis, but Harrison Bergeron or things like that, but as well as classical philosophy, you know, Plato, Socrates, Kant, all that stuff. So that by the time I was 15, I had read a fair amount and had this concept of nature versus nurture. And, you know, was really wondering if my nurture was bad, could I ever get to know my nature? Or did it alter my ability to get to know my nature? And what really made me worry about it was we had a bunny on the ranch and this bunny was raised by chickens and this bunny it didn't hop like normal it waddled it kind of had this funny waddle and it would <laughs> peck at its food it had been raised by chickens it thought it was a chicken it actually lay in the nests and hatch eggs for the hens so you would go out in the barn and see this fat bunny with these little baby chickies peeking out from under its belly i mean mind-blowingly cute frightening as hell for me at 15 because I was like, what if I'm a bunny that thinks yeah, it's, it's totally bunny. oblivious to its bunniness? How would I know about my own bunniness? And so <laughs> that was so fascinating to me. Like, how do you lift the skin of your nurture? And it can't erase your nature. I just I found it incredibly fascinating. And it gave me a thread to pull, I guess, of, you know, maybe because I was so into the dialectic, especially at the time and thought, like maybe I could think my way out of this. Maybe I could study my way out of this. Was happiness a learnable skill? Was it a teachable skill? Those questions at least made me feel incredibly hopeful that if I pursued them, I would have to find something out, you know? And so that's kind of what anchored me into moving out. 
I also at the time remember writing like about, I called it emotional English. Like if I was taught an emotional language, that's the language I would speak unless I learned a new language. And the language my family spoke, just like I had a genetic inheritance, I had an emotional one and abuse and substance abuse go way back. It's a language for a long time, as far as I could tell. So that was my language. I had to accept that at 15, like that's the language I knew. And where could I go to learn a new emotional way of relating to the world? There wasn't a school for it. And so I knew it was something I was going to have to try and understand and piece together. And so that's really been the focus of my life ever since. Writing was the byproduct of that goal. Writing was the side effect of me wondering these things, of me trying to soothe myself, of me trying to calm my anxiety, of me trying to come to terms with who saves me. Nobody's coming for me. What if I have to save myself? But it's always been the main thrust of my life. And the reason I'm in mental health now is just because that's actually what I've studied my whole life. It's the byproduct as well of what I was curious about. I mean, I think it's fascinating, first of all, the profound empathy that you have at such a young age to understand that, you know, people who are maybe not treating you with the most respect or nurturing care didn't have the tools to do it. They were taught that language. So there's this compassion that you were already able to find even when you were kind of a victim of this behavior? I wouldn't say I experienced it as compassion. I was a tough kid on my dad. When I left, it was goodbye. It wasn't like, man, you're really struggling. <laughs> I was angry. I was mad. But I was kind of logical and I was able to go, you just didn't learn either, you know, and I got to cut my losses and I got to figure out how to learn and it was like he fended for himself and I had to figure out how to fend for myself. So I don't know if I was very kind or compassionate, but I I don't know if I get the credit. <laughs> well, at least you were able to parlay that into writing beautiful music and, you know, look inward and ask the questions. Like if someone else isn't going to pluck me from the situation, like who is and finding art to sort of be a solve for that is not normal. I wasn't doing that at 15 I don't know what the hell I was doing at 15, but I wasn't asking those deep questions. But I find the meteoric rise that you had is overwhelming for anybody. You went to Interlochen and kind of in a cool way, you had a community that helped you raise money to be able to pay for your scholarship. So there was like a following and a love for what you were doing and people recognized that early on. Was that like a total fish out of water experience to suddenly be at this school for fine arts? And what was that like? Yeah, when I was 16, I got a partial scholarship to Interlochen. And then I did a fundraiser in town and six women in particular took me under their wing and were like, no, you can raise money. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> magic, witchcraft. And they were like, what can you do? And I was like, I sing. And they were like, could you do your own show? I was like... I don't write, but I did all covers of Cole Porter because there is a gay man in me dying to get out. I love <laughs> I get new 
So I did like a show of Cole Porter songs and they taught me how to go to businesses and get them to donate items. And we did a raffle during the intermission and we raised $5,000. My town sent, that was what I needed. It was culture shock going down there, especially I was obviously the only kid living on their own. I didn't read the documents good enough to know I needed money for food and books. It was a $15,000 a year program. I was, I thought I'd have a butler in all honesty. It was like, they were like, how will you pay for books? I'm like, come again. I need $15,000 in tuition. They're like, how will you eat? I'm like, come again. Um, so I had to get a job, you know, on campus. I was probably the only kid working. It was definitely culture shock. It was also really great. I'd never been around rich people. I didn't even know there was that many rich people in the world. I was so surprised how affluent people were. <laughs> I started trauma having like panic attacks. I didn't know what those were. So that was really scary. I was started singing in a piano bar to earn money, which really upset the dean when he learned I was singing in a bar off campus with a faculty member who played piano. I was like, that one was it got me in trouble. But it was awesome. The kids were immensely talented. You know, you go from being the kind of talented one in your town to like the least talented. And I loved it. I love that. I love being around more talented people. And I wanted to take full advantage of it. I think I double majored and double minored. And I was the first person to have ever done it. The dean took me aside and told me not to do it. You know, he's like, you can't do this. You can't take this many classes. We encourage you to focus in on one thing, on one major. And I was like, you don't get it. I get one year here. And I'm going to skip lunch <laughs> and I am going to take as many classes as I can. Like, yeah, so, since lunch luck. costs so much. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I wanted the hour to take art. Like, when was I going to get to do this again? You know, so I was like, you're going to have to pry this out of my hands. Like, this is my chance to learn everything I can. But they did give me a scholarship to come back the second year, a full ride this time. Nobody talked to me about college. I think the school must have maybe thought that's, you know, what your parents did and but it wasn't even a thing on my radar. Everybody else was going to Juilliard and all the stuff. And I had started writing, I think, when I was 16, that first year I started writing songs. You weren't allowed to stay on campus for breaks, like holiday break or Christmas, you know, spring break, which was awful. I couldn't get back to Alaska. And so I decided that I would just hitchhike around the country and hitchhike through Mexico and that I would support myself by street singing. So that's why I learned guitar. I've never had a good ear for learning other people's music, especially when I started. I didn't know enough chords. I learned four chords in like a little pattern. It was A minor, C, G, and D in that order in a little circle. And and I'd make up stuff as I was street singing and get money for train tickets and hobo around. And that ended up becoming Whole Save Your Soul. So that's just A minor, C, G, and D over and over. <laughs> and that's the first one I wrote. And it got me really you know, I loved it. I loved songwriting. I didn't think I'd get to do it as a career. So when I got, when I graduated, I went to take care of my mom. She was in San Diego. She had health problems and I went to take care of her and, and help pay rent or pay all the rent. I was working in a computer warehouse and my boss propositioned me. And when I wouldn't have sex with him, he wouldn't give me my paycheck. And my landlord kicked us out. We both were living in our cars for a little while, but then my mom went back to Alaska and I stuck it out thinking everything would turn around, but it got worse and worse. My panic attacks got worse. I became agoraphobic and I started to look homeless. You know, after a certain amount of time, it really wears on you. I had bad kidneys. I was sick a lot. And next thing I knew, it was like I, I was really homeless. It was really 
hard and scary. And it was during that time I was stealing a lot. And I was stealing a dress one day. I was in a dressing room, shoving this dress down my pants. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, remember that lofty goal when you were 15 of not being a statistic? Yeah. <laughs> You're a statistic. Like I was a homeless kid stealing and I couldn't avoid like that reflection in the mirror was the, <laughs> the truth. That's the freeze frame moment. It's like, you're probably wondering how I got here. Like, exactly. We're at this like crossroads. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remembered in that moment, something I had read that said, happiness doesn't depend on who you are or what you have. It depends on what you think. And I was like, what if that is true? Like, what if I could really turn my life around one thought at a time? And what am I thinking now that's leading me to such a shit show? But I couldn't witness my thoughts in real time. I didn't know the word disassociating, but I was so disassociative that I wasn't even in my body. I couldn't. I woke up after things. You know, I woke up after I was stealing or that moment. I kind of woke up during it, you know, in the mirror. And so I had to come up with a workaround of like, what do you do when you can't notice what you're thinking? Like, now what? And so... I felt like your hands are the servants of your thought. Like it's your thoughts slowed down into action. I can definitely watch what my hands are doing. It moves so much slower. So my huge life plan was watch what my hands do for two weeks or a month, write it down and then see if I learn anything like the most ridiculous life plan. So I did. And after about a month, I looked at everything and I was like, what's the pattern? You know, what's the takeaway? And I guess I saw that I quit believing in myself and I'd had jobs and worked hard since I was young, you know, I'd given up a little on myself, I guess. But the much more interesting thing was my panic attacks went away while I was doing this exercise. Really? It was like a crazy side effect of like, you know, drug side effects where they're like trying to cure glaucoma, but it makes your eyelashes grow. It was the weirdest side effect. And I was like, what in the holy heck? Like, how did... What was I doing that made these panic attacks disappear? And what I stumbled on was presence. Like, this is what we would call it now, you know? Right. Just mindfulness, being in your body. I stumbled on being so curious with so much rapture, like with so much focus that I forgot to think ahead and worry and have a panic attack. And I was like, well, it's helpful. Like, that actually was really helpful. Like, can I reproduce this? Can it last for long periods? And so that was really the phase of where I, I went from like philosophy and ideas to how do I make this practicable? How do I tackle specific behavioral things that are going wrong in my life and get a behavioral change? So like with stealing, like stealing is going to fuck my life up bad. You know, if I keep stealing, we're talking about jail and it's going to be a major bummer. So how do I affect this one pattern? And so just again, through observation, like going down and in being curious, being observant, I saw stealing as a triangle and it was a loop and there was a before, a during and an after. I wasn't great at noticing before. During was iffy. I usually woke up after. But just again, through being really observant, I started to notice, you know, now that's actually called a behavioral loop. There's a word for it. <laughs> Stimulus, response and reward. So something would prompt me. It would make me behave in a certain way, which was stealing. And then I would get a reward. And so I decided to replace the stealing with writing. And that was behavioral, right? Okay, that's something I can practice. That's something I can actually try and do. It's not just a philosophy now, it's like a doing. But it wasn't that easy. 
I kept waking up after I stole. And so that's an awareness problem. That's actually a mindfulness problem. So cultivating awareness, cultivating being present in real time is something I had to spend at least six months doing just for stealing. Then I'd wake up while I stole, but I didn't want to stop. So what was I going to do? It was like, it was a real legit addiction. Then I'd start to notice the urge to steal, but I didn't stop. I didn't know how to intervene. The very, very last thing after months of working on this was noticing the urge and being able to intervene and replace it with a new tool. And it turns out writing didn't satisfy my itch. I hated it, which is weird because I loved writing. Like, so you'd think that would just be such a nice swap, swap out stealing for writing. So why didn't I like it? That's weird. So that made me curious. I love writing. Why don't I like writing then? What I realized through more observation and just more curiosity was that your body has two basic states of being dilated and contracted. That's it. We go back and forth between these two states all day long, dilated and contracted. Every single thought, feeling, or action leads us into one of those two states. And so for about a month, I just started to write down every time I noticed my body feel like, ah, relaxed, staring at the ocean in San Diego, things were good. What was I thinking, feeling, doing? Every time I noticed I was tight, what was I thinking, feeling, doing? Now I had a map that was basically a behavioral map that led into my nervous system. Now I know that what I was actually talking about is your parasympathetic nervous system and your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight or your relaxing nervous system. And I learned that through thoughts, feelings, and actions, you get yourself in and out of these states and that there's biochemical, neurochemical responses that your body has to deal with. And I realized you couldn't be in two states at once. And so I wanted to see if I could basically force myself out of a contracted state by making myself participate on something on my dilated list. And I remember the first time I got it to work, I was feeling a panic attack come on, which again, that took months of cultivating awareness to not just wake up after the panic attack or during the panic attack, but to start to you know notice prior my system ramping up. And gratitude had always worked good for me. I noticed when I was so moved, I'm not talking like hashtag grateful, has to be like such a deep, profound, it's honor. You know, it's a deep sense of honor that moves you to tears, like that causes you to weep, that type. That was an immensely dilating thing for my system. And so I sat there kind of on the edge of a panic attack, trying to think of something to be grateful for. And I was getting nothing. I was feeling very sorry for myself. And so observation and curiosity dilate you, anybody. That's why they're the hallmarks of mindfulness. Just get curious about your environment. That'll force you to be present. And so I looked around and the sunlight was coming through a palm tree and I noticed the shadow on me and it reminded me of being a kid in Alaska when I would lay under trees and the, those little shadows. And I suddenly was just really struck from the moment that I was a little girl remembering laying and looking at the shadows to the moment now, 18 in a really tough situation looking at these shadows, I had never given up. It almost makes me cry right now talking about it. I had never fucking given up. I did not kill myself. Every day I tried. Suddenly I was so moved by gratitude to myself, which was not something that was real common with me. I was suddenly so moved by whatever part of me just kept going. And 
it caused me to weep. And before I knew it, I was sitting there like wondering who was watching me cry. And I was like, I wouldn't have a panic attack. I wept like an idiot, but I did not have a panic attack. (laughs) And that's when I knew I was really getting somewhere. That's when I knew that like these really focused behavioral changes were changing my life, changing my ability to function in the world. And then it's around then that I got discovered. I was singing in a coffee shop, totally on accident. Like labels started coming to see me while I was singing homeless in a coffee shop. And I almost didn't sign my record deal because I just started figuring out how to be happy. And when you have liberation from the type of hell, you know, that you live in, nothing is worth sacrificing it. I didn't want to be famous. I didn't want to be rich. I just wanted this liberty, this internal freedom from this type of torture. And I didn't think that becoming a recording artist meant it would be good for me. Honestly, I thought it would probably be really bad for someone like me. God forbid someone like me become famous. It's every movie you've seen about every musician. Like, I'm sure I would be a statistic and I don't want to be one. So I almost didn't sign a record contract, as weird as it sounds. I didn't think I could handle the pressure. And so again, I guess kind of like when I was 15, I had to be really pragmatic of like, well, what's going to make me different? What's going to make me not be a statistic? And so I made something called my North Star decisions. First and foremost, what was my job in life? My job was to learn how to be a happy whole human, not a human full of holes. And I wrote that down. My number two job was to learn how to be a musician And under that, there was a subcategory. I wanted to be an artist more than I wanted to be famous. I cared more about being a great artist more than I cared about just being famous. Just why was I doing it? So those were my two North Stars that I made a vow to guide my life by. And I am really proud to say I'm 48 years old and I have not betrayed those. It's been a shit show, mind you. But I have always tried to honor how am I doing? Am I happy? That is my number one job, never putting my career ahead of that. And those led to really hard choices, you know, that led to really early on me turning down a million dollar signing bonus right off the bat. Because as you know, that's an advance and you owe that back through record sales. That was like, it was putting a million dollar bounty on an album I hadn't even made yet. That puts pressure on a kid. And I was about, no, I didn't want pressure for my mental health. And so I depressurized it by not taking the money. And instead, I put it on the back end. I took the biggest back end anybody had ever been given so that if I sold records, I'd make money. That just felt better. It just took all the pressure off. I didn't have a million dollar bounty that I was going to have to have some kind of massively successful record when I didn't even know how to make a record. It also caused me to turn down a show called The Real World in the 90s. It was like, the beginning of reality TV and my label was like, check this out. There's a show. You're going to live in a house. There's going to be cameras in the house. You're going to go from living in your car to this house. This is the true story. True story. Of seven strangers <laughs> picked to live in a loft and have their lives taped to find out what happens what? when people stop being polite. Could you get the phone? And start getting real. The real world. Thursday at 10 on MTV. And we're going to watch you make the record. And by the time the record's out, it's going to be, you're going to be so famous. And I was like, 
nope. And they were like, come again? (laughs) And I was like, that puts so much pressure on me psychologically. I can't handle that. I can't handle people watching me. It was a real trigger for my trauma, like was being watched was a real thing for me. And I had to honor it. It was like, no, it's not going to work great for me. I don't want to be famous more than I want to figure out how to be an artist. And so you just have to stick to it. Every decision, I had to stick to those North Star decisions. It's also why I took years at the height of my fame, two years off after hands, because I wasn't doing good. I got so flipping famous. I didn't like it. And it was really weird to work your hiney off to get somewhere and go, nope, doesn't work for me. Because the whole industry is like, what do you mean it doesn't work for you? We've invested in you. You've invested in you. You have to keep going. And I was like, I don't think I do. (laughs) I saved my money. Maybe I want to be a photographer. Maybe I want to be a chef. I don't know. But I know I'm not happy right now. And, you know, at the time, there wasn't the word mental health was not even in the zeitgeist. It was sacrilege for me to quit at the height of my career. The press was like, she's washed up. I mean, it was a very unkind thing to live through. You would have thought it was the most shameful thing anybody had ever done. Yeah, like ungrateful or or whatever they could have thought. I think just balls and principles. When I thought it was balls, I was like, God damn, like it was a real act of courage. Well, look how sustainable your career has been. And like this album that you've just put out. I mean, we need seasons as artists to be able, like if you had been on Real World, that would have been the antithesis of who I perceive you to be. Because when do you cultivate those ideas to put in your songs if everything is on display? And I think that's what's so fucked right now about a lot of the content creators, I say in apostrophes for people listening, it's so performative all the time. And I think that you can't fill up the well again if you aren't taking time for yourself. And, you know, even people who argue you taking two years off after Spirit saying, well, it was like the most successful consecutive album release in recent history. Like she had the liberty to do that. Need us remind them of what you did with the initial offer of the million dollar or more record deal advance like knowing your worth at that point like this isn't a luxury that you were just able to afford yourself that's always the way that you've been and that's where your compass is pointed and that's that leads to sustainability yeah and for artists knowing you always have that power i had that power when i was homeless with no money you know you can't leverage people that won't be leveraged and that can live on nothing you know as long as you can live on a thing and you don't need the validation, right, of fame, if you can walk away and go, no, my happiness is more important than your money, you're very dangerous because you can't negotiate against it. <laughs> and then as long as you keep cultivating your talent, that's all that matters. You know, you better deliver, hopefully, on the talent. But that seasonal approach that you're talking about is so important because, you know, we are in a commercial industry for art. That's kind of a conflict not a bad one. You know, I love the business. I think the more you learn about the business, the better you can protect your art. So I really encourage artists to understand the business. But art is natural. It's organic. It's pro-nature. Commerce is anti-nature. It's wanting productivity to be the scale constantly on the incline. Well, nature's like this. Nature's cyclical. That means art is just inherently going to have to have a fallow season. 
And so as an artist, that's where your commitment to yourself comes in. That's where you have to make sure that you are surrounded by people that will honor that because we have to have quiet seasons where we're learning and having input so that we can have that output. And the people that are doing constant output will have a mental breakdown. That's just how it goes. And we've seen it over and over. And I would argue that, you know, you not putting yourself on the line for a million dollars at the very beginning of your career when you signed with Atlantic, that allowed you to keep your art unadulterated. And, you know, the first song that you write, uh, you know, Who Will Save Your Soul, having the success that it did, that could have totally choked you if you knew that also financially you had to somehow recreate this thing that, you know, we can't summon. It's creativity that, you know, comes to us. Just like you said, the dilation, what is it? Dilation and contraction. Like even that is seasonal, even when you're in the contracted state, you know, that that will pass too. But you're like, I wrote this song and it was the first thing I ever did. And now I need to follow it up. And I have all this financial pressure on me. You relieved yourself of that. And what that allowed you to creatively do was probably so much more full of possibility than the alternative. The best thing I ever did was not take that million. It didn't look like it was going to work. Like I failed for two years. It failed on every format, got laughed out of radio stations, had violent reactions at radio stations. These men in the 90s were just like violently opposed to how optimistic I was. It was not the cool thing at the time. And I was right behind you. You met my friend Tommy Matola early on. And yeah, I wish I wasn't so bowled over by the bigness of it all that was presented to me. You know, like the you do this and then you can do whatever you want. Like those empty promises of this is how it's done. That's where my bar singing background so thankful, like the bar singing and being around schmoozy guys. And by the time I got to Tommy Matola, because he tried to sign me, I was like, they were like, we're going to bring in Tommy Matola as the big gun. She'll be so impressed. I was like, see, I was. I was like, wow, you guys just fuck up me signing here because this is not a great person. <laughs> Has he been outed as not a great person? I don't know. I, I just met him all those years ago and I was like, this is not the kind of person I want to work with. I don't work with him really at all anymore but he was definitely the liaison for my early career and there was a program for how things were done and i heard stories of you going into these radio stations and assholes just saying things that you know i can only imagine because i heard it to a degree that's probably not as extreme as yours with like your visibility and everything where your label is like play ball just come on put up with it and I was always fed this, like, you know, you got to show that you want it. And the next person behind you wants it more. And they'll just like pinning us against each other. And yeah, like how toxic and where is the room for creativity there and for individuality when you feel like all you're trying to do is just prove how badly you want it. And that's the meter of what your success will be. You know, that's where every artist has to say at what cost. You know, it isn't at any cost, you know, and people might tell you that it is. But I mean, every time I've invested in my character, it always paid dividends that were magical. You know, just like even not having sex with my boss, it really messed my life up. Like I paid a big price. 
but I was happy to pay the price, you know, but I had to live in my car. I ended up homeless because of that asshole. Like that's the consequence of that. It paid off into me having a magical career. You can't plan that shit, but I really believe it's some kind of weird quantum math that when you invest in your character, when you invest in your humanity, when you don't dilute it, it's like a stock market of magic. I don't know how it works, but I've never seen it not not work. And it's always been more magical of like, I know it looks dark right now, but something more magical will come. And those radio guys, you know, it was crazy. I remember going into a radio station and the guy was, you know, talking to me normal. We went on air, you see the live on air sign. And the guy goes, hey, welcome back to KYZY. You may have heard me describe my next guest as a large breasted woman from Alaska. Jewel, how are you? And I go, what the hell? I was like, hey, you must be that small penis man. I've heard so much about from South Carolina. Oh my God. Off the air. They took me off the air, <laughs> escorted me out of the building, <laughs> gone, <laughs> kicked out. A guy was like, Jewel, we've always wanted to know, how do you give blowjobs with those messed up teeth? And I would go, you know what? I was like, I can fix these. You're never going to fix being stupid. Like, what are you going to do? I'm so worried for you. Kicked out of the station. <laughs> but thank God my label was just like, I mean, it was what it was. I It wasn't at any cost. That was just, you know, again, that's where it's just like, I can go live in a car. Like, this isn't at any cost, you know. But it was hard. Was do you feel... Day. Like, because when in popular music at the time, you were an outlier. I mean, it was pretty slick and glam and, you know, lots of fun stuff happening. But you were so substantive and authentic and stunning, touring with <laughs> Bob Dylan and Neil Young. And it was different, especially for someone so young. Did you feel that people started to see that you had boundaries and were you being treated differently or were people becoming like more even were they seeking retribution because you would stick up for yourself i was kicked out of a lot of radio stations but that was okay i definitely was thinking about changing you know that first album failed my label was like i mean for two years I was opening in, you know, goth clubs. I was opening ahead of Bauhaus and I was paying him $500 a night to let me sing for his goth fans because nobody would take me on the road. And, you know, Catherine Wheel and Belly and just, it was grunge, right? And I was a folky singing at these really hardcore shows, things getting thrown at me, you know, the whole nine yards. So nothing worked. And I started making a second album and I was almost done with it. And it was a little reactive, you know, in all honesty, it was a little like, I can be edgier or like, do I just have to kind of sound like what's happening on radio? Like, it doesn't seem like that hard. Like, I was definitely doubting. I was like, did I mm. write, did I make the worst decision? Should I have taken that million? <laughs> like, oh my God, this isn't going well. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying my chat with Jewel. I'm currently ascending the stairs at an amphitheater in Pompano, Florida, where we're going to be playing tonight on the Almond Family Revival. And it gets kind of crazy out here on the road. You can really get caught up in the chaos of it all and forget to be present and just take a breath. And what a godsend 
re-listening to this conversation with Jula and I has been for me in this moment. And hopefully for you as well, because life is crazy. And when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to remember that you know, that difficult period does, in fact, inevitably end. And I love the idea of the dilation contraction phases of our behavior. She talked about, she's just so wise. And it makes sense that the first song she wrote, even at such a young age, is Save Your Soul, because she saved herself. She decided that that was the only option and she took it and she was smart enough and wise enough, probably because she was exposed to things, unthinkable things at an early age to turn those things into beauty. So I'm going to channel Jewel today and enjoy all the wonderful moments where I'm grateful and open and try and keep it together when I'm not, because that's life. Cheers. But that's when Dylan asked me to come out. So I was in the studio. I was like, I'll be back. And I think it was a three week tour. I was like, I'll be back in three weeks. I'll finish it. But it, that altered the course. You know, he was like, you are a fucking singer songwriter. You may never be famous. You may never make money, but are you a singer songwriter or are you not? Because it's a whole other calling. It's a whole other thing. You might suffer the rest of your life. But you either are one or you aren't. And he's like, I believe you are one. And I was like, that's all I needed. <laughs> like, Yes, sir. Like, I'm a singer-songwriter, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then uh, Neil took me out next. And he was like, fuck radio. He goes, you may never get radio. He goes, you're going to tour. You're going to build up an audience. And I was like, okay. I was like, I get it. Like, I got it. And then things started kind of turning around. There was never any retribution, I don't think. I probably have a reputation for being a bit sharp-tongued. I'm sure that that's been told to radio DJs. You know, like, Jewel will jab back, but that's not bad. I don't I don't mind. I will. So it's life. Yeah, I think anyone who says the things you just said were said deserves to be jabbed in the throat. Like, yeah, that shit would not fly today. Thank God. I think I was hoping that maybe you would have seen in that time in your life the tides change a little bit or at least people knowing like maybe don't go there but i think that might be a little too optimistic on my part just because no, i think that a lot of it was howard stern was everything and less intelligent people in all honesty were trying to be shock jocks and so it was just a lot of people trying to emulate howard stern by being shocking and that was the trend and that trend faded away you know howard is howard but in general, the DJs quit. It phased out, I feel like. Yeah, not everyone is a Howard Stern. I yeah. think, especially, I'm such a fan of his in his recent mindful years. And he always talks about how you're one of his favorite guests. And Aww. I can see why. And I don't want to put you on the spot, but like you said, you jab back. Like you, you're holding court in these interviews with him. And, you know, he's funny and he asks these questions and you're like, nope, nope, next. Like we're moving forward. But I think, you know, that is sort of a masterclass to a lot of artists, maybe female artists to uh, watch just you conduct yourself in these interviews. And I think he's one of the best interviewers out there. And he has obviously incredible, immense respect for you. And I think his whole staff has a crush on you. But. It is, you know, people trying to 
trying to do that. And people are trying to just get that clickbait headline. And unfortunately, it's still happening. But that's just absurd what you had to withstand. It's bullshit. Yeah, I think like something singing in bars so young, like when I was 10, 11, I had a guy fold a dime in my hand and he said, call me when you're 16. You're going to be great to fuck when you're older. Oh, my God. So that kind of thing was happening to me so young where I would freeze. I remember coming out of a bathroom. I was 14-ish and a guy measured my throat. It's very scary, right? It's a very physically intimidating thing to have happen. Up against a wall, he's measuring my throat. He takes his fingers in a way. He goes, have you been cheating on me? I still don't know exactly what that means. It might be like a blowjob joke. (laughs) But it was obviously sexual and it was very physically intimidating. And I froze. But you have it happen so much that you get so much practice (laughs) and you start to unfreeze in real time. It's just, it was like having to get your hundred hours in or your thousand hours in. I just happened to get my thousand hours in by the time I was 18 at learning how to have my system not freeze, how learning how to find my voice. You know, and the thing I just hope anybody listening or any young artist is you have a thousand percent permission to be authentic. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be a dick. I always use humor. You know, I think I was funny when I was like, you must be the small dick guy. I think that was (laughs) funny. I didn't say left you, you know, I didn't like storm out. Like I'd use humor. I don't mind. Take a go. But let me do it too. Right. So you find your way, but you have a thousand percent permission to be authentic. It is not at any cost. Nothing is at any cost. The price of your soul is worth something. And if this is a closed door, so be it. You will find another door. You don't have to walk through every door if it's a shitty door to walk through. And I mean, that hasn't hindered you at all. I mean, this is your 13th studio album that you've just released. It's beautiful it's also touching on influences that i feel like throughout your career you haven't even really gotten to pay honor to and uh you know muscle shoals is where i got to record my last record i love the sound of this music and i think that you need to be able to take your time in between project and project butch walker is an incredible co-producer that you guys work together beautifully on the production of this And I don't believe that you're in such a small percentage of people making music and art that are going to get to make this much art and put it out because you've made those critical choices of when to abstain from grinding and hustling that toxic culture that I feel like everyone feels like they need to subscribe to and when to apply your creativity. And it shows the joy is very apparent on this record. I'm glad this was a hard record. You know, the, because my number one goal was to figure out how to be a happy whole human. That meant I had to grow in areas outside of art. I don't want my art to be my best art. I want my life to be my best art. I want to approach my life. Like the entire thing is my art and how I'm mothering. I have to take that as artfully you know, and that means I have to learn and give it time and real dedication and healing. Same thing. Like that's an art. It's an art to heal. It's an art to transmute pain and poison that you don't get to choose how life changes. You only get to choose how it changes you. 
like if you don't take that really seriously that's art like that's that's an art and so you don't get it all i don't think you get it all you know when you water the daisies the daisies grow and when you water the roses the roses grow and it isn't always time to water the roses you know it isn't always time to just be an artist making music and you have to honor those times in your life and you have to have the courage to say I don't know what's going to happen to the art. Like I walked away for seven years. That's a long time to walk away. You were busy though. (laughs) You were doing a lot of great work in those seven years. I mean, yeah, I was working in, yeah, other areas in the Mental Health Foundation, but I walked away from music for seven years. That's three lifetimes in our business. You know, you don't get it back. It doesn't just come back. Same with like the kind of genres I'd switch into. That was, people didn't like that. They don't like that I switched over you know, and so you're starting from scratch. So you pay a price and you should know the price you're paying. You know, if I'm going to go from Close to your Soul to Hands, which is a very different style, you know, you radioed and research based on familiarity scores. Hands didn't sound like anything I'd done before. really low familiarity scores so I had to go promote from scratch as if I wasn't as famous as I was and then when I went standing still starting all over and then god forbid pop starting all over then god forbid country starting all over so you pay a price if you want to do whatever you want creatively you have to be really practical about what price will I pay and am I willing to pay that price that was just work I didn't mind the work it was interesting with this last record you know, having seven years between anything that I'd done, it was fascinating. This is the first album I've written from scratch. I've always had a massive catalog and I always could just pull a whole album together in any genre. This so and I could have, but I just didn't want to. I wanted this to be who I was as a 40, however old I was, 46-year-old woman when I was writing it. It feels very cohesive. It was the hardest thing I've done. I wrote 200 songs to get the 12 I like. And I realized I was writing safe. I was writing like, I was writing proficiently. I was a well-crafted writer, but it wasn't, I didn't know what it had happened. And I honestly think it's after since 2003, since shit went down with my mom. I don't think I had the same level of honesty in my writing. I didn't know it. I thought I had it. But when I started writing songs from scratch and not going through my back catalog, I was like, oh, no, this is tame in a really a way that it made me sad. And I didn't know how to get it back. I had to fight for it. I see why middle-aged artists do a lot of drugs to get a new sound because it just bypasses all the shit and it just rocket launches you into something interesting. (laughs) Doing it without drugs and having to go through like the psychological dig into wildness again into when did I start being tame when did I like bifurcate something and not go below it that was heavy that's even it took like I said it took me 200 songs to get to some that I thought were honest and really who I was now that was work for sure that's remarkable 200 songs and just the mining that you did for that sound and this album and it's complex I keep saying how joyful it is but there are are like one song sounds like this Celtic morning song that I absolutely love. And, you know, you have 
Darius on another song that was set to release earlier that you reimagined. And I think the production's beautiful. It's really cool that you've revealed yet another side of your musicality. I think, you know, oftentimes uh, people, when they, when you don't meet their idea of who you are, they become critical, but that's the antithesis of authenticity. I think we are very versatile. We have multitudes within us and our albums are supposed to be impressions of where we are at that point in our life. So all those sounds are within you and our job is to evolve and to explore your R&B sensibilities, which you execute. Like there's some soul revival energy (laughs) dancing in my kitchen kind of spirit (laughs) happening, but that makes me happy. I think that it was funny when I went, when I made my pop album, which I love, I loved making that album. The cynicism that it was met with was really interesting. Now, of course, you know, my heroes like Bob Dylan and Neil Young did that. They pushed themselves. They did different styles. It really dawned on me that the only women that have done it, well, it's not true. I've seen Joni Mitchell had dog eat dog, you know, and some stuff like that, but much more unkind, in my opinion, to women that do it. We're thought of as oh, yeah. sincere and inauthentic and pandering to the media. Rebranding. Yeah. Like it's some contrived thing. And I also feel like there's a sense of ownership that the listener and the critic feels over women that they've come to recognize versus our male it's counterparts. Also, I dare say, because Madonna really set the tone for females in the music industry so did Joni Mitchell. So did Ricky Lee Jones. But I mean, Madonna has a whole other deal. And I think pop is different too. Like Cher, I think, and Madonna are probably two of our, our women with the most longevity. And they're nothing like I am. I love them, but they're nothing like I am. It's not what I can model a career after. And sadly, female singer-songwriters don't have the longevity or career longevity and even the respect that the males do. Like Joni Mitchell should have everything Bob Dylan has, you know, Carol King and Ricky Lee Jones. She does in my book, but yes. Me too. But they can't sell the tickets. Isn't that interesting? That's where like complete misogyny is as a foot in our industry. And so it does leave people like you and people like me to go like, well, how do we navigate? How do we be taken seriously over a 60 year period when the standard is honestly kind of Madonna who was contrived? I mean, I think she'll say it. It was rebranding, you know? Every time it really was from a marketing intelligence, which is an intelligence, not necessarily from an artistic muse that was authentic in that way. So fighting through that, because we need women doing it. We need women saying, no, this is who I am. You know, and the idea that like, I found it so weird, like fascism in music of like, I am not one thing. Like I have a closet and there's sweatpants and there's gowns and there's black tie things and there's kind of boyish tomboyish things and nobody looks in my closet and goes are you authentic (laughs) i love that why on earth like do you think my music would ever be one thing (laughs) and why does that raise suspicion for people of inauthenticity it's like Hmm, i don't know yeah (laughs) very weird (laughs) well congratulations on everything that you continue to do. I want to encourage everyone to check out the work that you're doing with Never Broken and the Inspiring Children Foundation. And 
this album is beautiful. Freewheeling woman you are. And I want everyone to go listen to it. Thank you so much for your time. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jewel. Make sure to give her a follow on her socials at Jewel. Go check out her latest release, Freewheeling Woman. And I'd encourage you to go check out the work that she's doing with Never Broken and the Inspiring Children Foundation. Also, I dare you to accept her hashtag not alone challenge campaign. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hopefully we'll see you out on the Almond Family Revival before we wrap up this year. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media, hosted by Maggie Rose. Produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose, and Kirsten Cluthy, with production assistance from Kippy Young. Edited by Justin Thomas. Music by Maggie Rose. Graphics by Mark Dowd. And to close out the show, here is from Freewheeling Woman, Dancing Slow with Jewel featuring Train.
Osiris. <laughs> <laughs>